Even before we look at God's word this morning, let's pray together and ask for his help and blessing. Our Father in heaven, we just sang those beautiful words in your presence. Ever, O Lord, with thee, all shall be well with me, held by thy hand, and thou wilt guide my feet by thine own counsel sweet, till I for glory meet and in glory stand. Oh Lord, I don't know if there's more beautiful words that we've sung this morning than those. And I don't know that I can pray a prayer that's any better than those words right there. So Lord, as you have heard your people sing this morning, would you answer the petition of that singing prayer? And would you now, as we look at your word, teach us all that you would have us to know from it? For the glory of your son's name, and for the good and purity and advance of your church. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look together at Genesis chapter 29, beginning in verse 31, and then extending to verse or to chapter 30, verse 24. This is God's word. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then he said, here is, then she said, here is my servant Bilhah, go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf and even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. 
And Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages, because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me, because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Well, there are certain passages in the scripture, isn't it, that when you read them, there's a kind of twisted thanksgiving that you feel in your heart. And one is, when you read a passage like this, you think, you think to yourself, my family is not the most dysfunctional in the world. <laughs> That's what you feel in reading this passage, do you not? You think to myself, could we read a more discouraging, more scandalous, more debauched passage of Scripture than the one we just read? And then you look over your family and you think, I love these people. These are great people. <laughs> it's not nearly as dysfunctional as this family, Jacob Leah and Rachel. And one of the remarkable notices that we should have as we approach a passage like this is that we're looking at a patriarch's family. We're looking at a man, Jacob, and his dysfunctional family and his manipulative wives and his complacency and lack of leadership that's all over the pages of this particular narrative. We're seeing a man who will later be described, and Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, will describe himself as the God of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yeah, this one. So as discouraging as it is to read the content of the behavior that's taking place, there is encouragement underneath the very beginning of this text to know that God, yes, even used Jacob and Jacob's family. That the promises of God and the grace of God are not held captive to the perfections of God's people or their obedience to all of which he has called them to, that we are genuinely at God's mercy. And that is so true when we look at the story of Jacob and Leah and Rachel in the text that's before us. Now, as we examine this text together, I want to spend most of our time on these two women. They really do occupy the leading characteristics, the leading qualities of the narrative. Uh, the passage is emphasizing them and the actions that they take. In many ways, Jacob is, is backward and is complacent and is in the background as he is in the narrative, critically important in understanding his failure as a, as a husband and a father here. We really see the women being highlighted. 
in this text. And so I want to look at these women. I want you to see essentially this. I want you to see there are two women. They have two issues, different issues, but they both have the same problem. And in the end, they both need the same solution. There's two women. They have different issues. It's really the same problem. In the end, they both need the same solution. Now, as the story really starts, it's it starts, interestingly, on a, on a note of grace. If you look at verse 31, the very opening uh, verses there in this particular section is this. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. Oh, it's greatly encouraging to read those words because if you've been with us following the story of Leah specifically, you know that this is a woman who, who's not, well, well, can't rejoice about much. As we look over the narrative, we, we only know really one thing about her. And we find it back in Genesis chapter 29, verse 17. This is what we learn about her. She's not as pretty as Rachel. That's all we know about her. She's not as pretty as Rachel. Rachel is beautiful in form and appearance, but Leah not so much. The only other implicit reality in the text is that Jacob shows up looking for a wife, coming to Laban and his family, and he gives no thought to Leah whatsoever. He sees Rachel and is instantly smitten with her and tries to arrange an opportunity with Laban to perform, exercise a, a profit, a wage of which he can pay a dowry in order to have Rachel hand in marriage. He, he doesn't even consider Leah. Leah's never on the table. Leah's of no interest. She's total background until she's put in the foreground. And of course, when she's put in the foreground, it's by her father who have, uses her as a pawn. Makes her dress up like Rachel to pretend that she's Rachel, to go in by night into the tent of, of, of Jacob to deceive him and then to become his bride unbeknownst to him. She's used as a kind of economic maneuver. He's going to get another seven years out of Jacob just to be able to get Rachel. That's what Laban is thinking. And at this particular moment, he uses her as a mere play on a chessboard in order to say checkmate to Jacob. It's terribly dehumanizing. And it's quite clear that he doesn't have her interests or, of course, Jacob's interests in mind. He's only thinking about himself. At the beginning of this passage, verses 30, actually, just before we get into the reading of today's text, we, we read the final note that's mentioned regarding Leah. L Leah is now married to Jacob. Rachel is now married to J Jacob. And we're told that Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. There's nothing positive about Leah. There's nothing good in the text. And so when we read at the opening of verse 31 that God saw Leah... It's language of favor. It's language of compassion. God looked at her and he was moved at her condition. And he extended to her one of the greatest blessings that an ancient Near Eastern woman could ever have. She bears children. The Lord, she says, has looked upon my affliction as Reuben is born. And then as Simeon is born, the Lord has heard that I have been hated. And he has extended to me this son also. It's an incredible blessing. Leah's being favored by God. But here's what I want you to see in the text. It's not enough. It's not enough. 
you notice what else Leah said when Reuben was born there in verse 32? She recognizes God's blessing in giving her a son and then she turns that blessing towards what her heart really wants. She says, for now that I have a son, my husband will love me. Now my husband will love me. She says a similar thing when Levi is is born, her third son. Now this time, my husband will be attached to me. He'll be one with me because I have borne him three sons. Notice the deficiency in the heart of Leah. The Lord is pouring out blessings on her life, but she can't see the blessings. She can't even receive the blessings. In fact, the blessings are only a means by which to get the real blessing that her heart is after, which she wants to be loved by her husband. She's looking for the affection of the one in whom she is married, and she's desperate for it. She's desperate for it. In fact, she's so She's so desperate for it, she's devastated that she doesn't have it. Think of how devastated you would need to be to name your children after your own aspiration to get your husband's affection. She names her children after her aspiration to get her own husband's affection. Leah looks at the child and the child is only as good as that child is able to garner for her the affections of her husband, because that's what Leah is living for. Now, I don't mean to be hard on Leah because Rachel has the same problem. Two women, different issues, same problem. Except in Rachel's case, it's the exact opposite. Rachel is the golden child, the beautiful one in form and appearance. We, we've learned that she's a shepherdess. She has a career. She has a skill. She, she's profitable. We also learn that she has the affection of her husband. The one thing that Leah wants, Rachel has. But here's the irony. The one thing that Leah has, Rachel wants. Verse 1, Rachel was barren. Rachel was barren. Leah's got all the kids. Rachel has all the love. And and both women want what the other woman has, and both women can't stand that the other woman has what it is that they want. Now, we might look at the situation that Rachel is in, and we might say to ourselves, well, you know, I'm sorry you don't have children, but you got a pretty good gig here. You're pretty. Um, you got a decent career. you got the affection of your of your husband. It's about all you'd want as a, as a modern woman, if you at least have those, those things. But you understand, she's not a modern woman. She's an ancient Near Eastern woman. This is, this is the worst possible predicament. To, to, be, to be married and not to be able to give to your husband children is to, is to wear a mantle of shame. It's to walk around in a community where people whisper underneath their breath about the nature of, of fertile Leah and barren Rachel. It's practically a a worse faith that you could imagine as a woman in her time. And it's why we see with Leah a desperation for affection, but with Rachel we see an equal opposite desperation. But the affection and desire is for children. She says it in so many words when she speaks directly to her husband with raised tone. Give me children or I shall die. Hyperbole? 
Probably. But hear the heart cry. The pain and the anguish is so deep in her life that she literally looks out at all that she has and to her it is meaningless unless she has a child. All other blessings amount to nothing if she doesn't have a child. We've got two women, different issues, same problem. What is the problem? One word. Idolatry. Idolatry. There's maybe no more clear passage in the Old Testament to talk about idolatry than the one that we're in. Idolatry. These two women have put in reigning position in their life an earthly good where only God should occupy that throne in their heart. They've placed an earthly good on the throne of their hearts where only God should be the one that is there. Now, why do I say it that way? Because Paul says it that way. You see, Romans chapter 1 the Apostle Paul actually gives us a clear definition of what idolatry really is. It's, it's not, as we have a tendency to think, a, a totem pole or pagan cultural practices or statues and bowing down to wood stone and, and stubble. It's, it's not merely those cultic practices. It has an issue with regards to the spirituality of our hearts. Paul puts it this way in Romans 1.25. He says, an idol is created any time, and these are the two words he uses, any time that we worship and serve. Those are the two words. Any time we worship and serve, this is what he says, the creature rather than the creator. Anytime. Anytime we serve the creature rather than the creator. Or anytime we serve the creation rather than the creator of the creation. When we look to an earthly good, an earthly good. Look at these two women is Leah after something evil? The affection of her husband? Not at all. She's due the affection of her husband. She's married to him. It's a normal expectation that she would be a woman who is loved by the man in whom she is married. Take Rachel. She wants a child. Is it wrong for her to want a child? Is she after something sinful? Absolutely not. The issue is not the child. The issue is not the affection of a husband. The issue is the place or the dominance that that desire has within her heart. It, that dominance has, has now ascended to the reigning power over her heart and over her life where nothing matters unless I have that. Both women have done this. Leah with regards to affection and love. Rachel with regards to children. Both women have fallen in with the spirit of idolatry. Now, one question is raised, I think, at a moment like this. How do we know if this kind of thing is happening to us? How do you know if you're falling into a spirit of idolatry, if I'm falling into a spirit of idolatry, what are the indicators? How would we identify? What are the symptoms? What are the characteristics? Well, I think there are many things that we could talk about raising that question. And if this was merely a lecture on the work of 
the spirit of idolatry and sin, I would go a number of different directions. But let me just look at the text with you. Because the text gives us, I think, two very significant and leading identifiers with regards to our own heart's attachment to an idol rather than to God. What are those two identifiers? The first is, look in your life about where it is that you have emotional upheaval. And wherever that is, I'd like to suggest do some looking right there to see if there's an idol. That's number one. Look in your life to see where there's emotional upheaval. Where you get fight mad. Where you get desperately sad. Where you might get a little too happy. Focus on that. Probably underneath those emotional upheavals, you might find that there may be an idol. Secondly, look at your relational conflicts. Look at your relational conflicts. Look at your emotional upheavals. Look at your relational conflicts. Where emotional upheavals and relational conflicts come together, bingo. You've probably got some idols. You've probably got some work that needs to be done. Now, as, as you think about those two things, where do I see that in the passage? Everywhere in the passage. Now, I want to just note three specific emotional upheavals that are tied also to relational conflicts. And what you're going to begin to see is what these women are really serving. And the first of the emotional upheavals and the relational conflicts surround this idea of envy. Envy. Both women in the text are described in the language of envy. They are green, as it were, with envy. They want what the other has, and they can't stand that the other has what it is that they want, so much so that they're willing to name some of their children by the rivalry of envy that they feel with one another. That's remarkable. Where do I see this? Well, it's Leah with Zilpah. As she gives her maidservant to Jacob and together they produce Asher. We read this with regards to the definition of Asher's name. Happy am I, says Leah, for women have called me happy. Now, as you look at that, you think, oh, what a sweet little rejoicing that Leah is having over the birth of Asher. Uh Uh-uh. She's saying, as I look out and as women look at me, they say, I am happy. I am, as one commentator put it, the envy of all the women. I am the envy of all the women. Maybe one woman in particular, my sister, beautiful Rachel, can't have any children. And me, I can't stop having children. That's the spirit of the birth of Asher. Rachel's the same way. When Naphtali is born, she, she actually says, though, though at this point in the narrative, Leah has four children and, and Rachel has two. Here's what Rachel says. With mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister. With your sister? And have prevailed. Oh, this is all about your sister. And you just named your child wrestling with your sister. It's it's noteworthy, isn't it? That the envy has so eaten up these two women 
that their tensions between one another and their conflicts are exposing what it is that they are really after, that their identities are wrapped up in these earthly goods more than the creator of those goods. You see it also in their outbursts of anger. Look at Genesis 30 verse 1. Here is Rachel as she approaches Jacob, right? She says, give me children or I shall die. Here's her expression of anger towards her husband. He represents the person, humanly speaking, who can fulfill her wants. He's the one. And yet in all of their relations, there's nothing to show for it. And yet, he has been known to have children with others. She has come to the point of desperation in verse 1, where Leah has four children. She comes to Jacob and says, it's time. You've got to give me a child or I am going to die. And she is literally, as it were, holding him captive for not giving her what it is that she would demand, what she needs to be able to feel fulfilled, satisfied, loved, accepted, to feel like she's enough. That's what she's after. Now, it's interesting in the passage, isn't it, that Jacob himself gets a little testy with her in response, where he says, woman, am I God? Now, let, let me, if you can see it this way, this, you know, husbands, this is not a way to love your wives, by the way. It's not an example at all. Though he's right, he's not God, he can't control. God has closed the fruit of your womb, as he says, but he's, he's doing it to stick a little, a little edge into her side as they're arguing over this, because if you can hear him, he's saying, listen, woman, the problem is not with me. I am a father. The problem is with you. Leah doesn't seem to be having an issue. Zilpah's not having an issue. Bilhah's not having an issue. I'm not having an issue. I think you should get this worked out with God, Rachel. Feel it? You know underneath it all, Rachel feels that painful inadequacy. And the sense of this moment in relationship with her husband is that he's exacerbating that sense of inadequacy, which leads her to an act of desperation, right? As she gives to him her maidservant. She, by hook or crook, is going to be a mother. Now, the other place that we actually see a snap is when Leah responds to Rachel in that curious little section in verses 14 to 18 about the mandrakes. Leah erupts in that moment as Rachel uh, comes to her and says, hey, listen, I heard that Reuben found some mandrakes out in, the, out in the field as he was out working, the wheat harvest. Is it okay if I have uh, some of those mandrakes? And here's what we hear from Leah. Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Hey, I just wanted some mandrakes. I, 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 are we going to do this right here, right now? Is this right here in the wheat field? Is that, what, is that where this is going to be? I mean, okay, this is where it's going down. That's what it appears. There's like, this kind of comes out of nowhere, except that it doesn't come out of nowhere. Because listen to that second question. Would you also take my son's mandrakes also? All right, you hear the resentment? You hear the bitterness rising up, but let's go another layer. Mandrakes. 
In the ancient Near Eastern culture at this particular moment, it was believed that mandrakes were aphrodisiacs. It actually were used in fertility rituals in order to bring forth children. What is Rachel doing as she comes and she hears that mandrakes have been discovered? She's been saying, hey, can I have some of those fertility pills? And immediately Leah responds, is it not enough that you've taken my husband? There's an idol clash between the two women. Are you trying to take my mandrakes too? Listen to Leah's heart. Leah is saying, listen, Rachel. Listen, pretty Rachel. Listen, shepherdess Rachel. Listen, everybody loves you, Rachel. L listen, you've had everything my whole life. The one thing I have is fertility. Are you going to take that too? You've already taken the affection of my husband. The one thing I have. Are you going to take it? You see the pain, the turmoil of envy? Do you see the anger? In both of those cases, as you begin to feel in the normal workings of your everyday life, your temperatures rise, self-loathing begin to develop, hatred and blaming of others begin to show up, conflict ensue, that feeling desperately that if I don't get this thing, life is not going to be worth living, that feeling, idols in your heart. Idols in your heart. Something is operating the position that only God himself should be in, in the midst of your heart. And you see finally in the envy and in the anger, you also see this third component that I think reveals those idols there is how willing everybody in this text is willing to use everybody else to get what they want. This is the most dehumanizing text imaginable. We have serial immorality, we have hiring for sexual favors. We have all kinds of amazing usury that's happening in the context of this passage. Listen, it goes back generationally. Let's just remember where it is that we've come from. Going back just to the previous chapters, wasn't it Laban who hired Jacob in order to use him to be able to get what it is that he wanted? Wasn't it Laban that used his daughters as maneuvers and pawns to be able to accomplish what it is that he wants? Isn't it his daughters now that are using their own children as their birth and their own maidservants that they're more than willing to put forward to use as a baby factory in order to boast their ego? And here, isn't it ultimately at the end that Rachel and Leah in, gosh, what is the most despicable section, isn't it? Where they exchange mandrakes for a night with their husband? It's very dark. It's incredibly dark. No one is treated like a human being in this passage. No one's treated like they're made in the image of God. No one's treated as if they're deserving of dignity, of respect. It's because nothing will get in the way of the idol. Nothing will get in the way of the idol. Whatever it is I want, I will do whatever it is I need to do to get it. And if it means clawing up over you, I will get it. That's the spirit of idolatry. It sees people as stepping stones to get where you want to go rather than as people made in the image of God deserving of love and affection and treasuring and dignity and respect.
In that one moment where you have Leah and Rachel in the wheat field brokering this deal over the mandrakes, it's the one time in the whole text they agree. The one time in the whole text they agree is when what happens? Where one decides, I won't stand in the way of your idol. I'll give you the mandrakes. And the other says, I won't stand in the way of your idol. I'll give you the husband tonight. The one time that they can agree is when they mutually agree to get out of the way of each other's idols. And isn't it just sickening when Leah runs out to the field as Jacob is coming home from work and says, come in with to me tonight for I have hired you. Like father, like daughter. Leah's looking a lot like Laban, isn't she? She's found a way. She's been working her whole life to get the affection of her husband. Now he's going to work for her. Something switched. Something switched. She'd had enough. Now is the time that he's going to work for her. He is not going to stand in the way of her idol. You know, as you look over that section, it's remarkable that she would name her child the the produce, the fruit that comes from that union. She names that child Issachar, which literally means wages. I hired my husband and I got the wage. I got the reward. I got the payment. Isn't that how she's been thinking the whole time? Isn't that how Rachel's been thinking the whole time? They've been wrapped in a works righteousness mentality from the very beginning. Doing whatever it is they need to do to get whatever it is that they want. Earning favor. Seeking to pursue acceptance. Looking for position. Status. Privilege. The things that are going to make them feel like they're enough. They're willing to do whatever it takes to get there. That's been the mentality from the beginning. When you see the sickening end to the spreading of immorality throughout this passage, it's the natural end of an idol that will stop at nothing to be satisfied. It's the natural end. Everybody in this passage has been exchanging one another. Everybody's been using one another. And there's something that you know is vacuous within the souls as they seek to be able to find satisfaction. And with every child and with every evening with the husband, it's never enough. There's a telling moment when Rachel has her first child. There in in verse 1 of the passage. When, When Bilhah ultimately produces... Her first son, and she says she will call him Dan. In your text, in your English translation, the, the, the language is, God has judged me and he has heard me. So it's, it's, an, odd, it's an unusual kind of conception. Well, if he's judged you, it seemed like he didn't hear you well or how you wanted him to hear you. But of course, that's not really the language that's indicated here. The language of judge is the language of vindicate. He has adjudicated me. He has judged me. He has heard me. I have a child. It's the language that will be used later in the Old Testament and then translated into the New Testament in the Septuagint, the language of 
justification. I have had a child, and this child is my justification. That's a term that we use to describe our position with Christ being saved. She is in one sense saying, I have gotten my first child. This child is my savior. This child has been to me my savior. He's rescued me. Now we see that it's short-lived, isn't it? Because Rachel goes on and we see that she needs to have a lot more children in order to continue to feel that way. Oh, that's in sign of an idol. Is that you always need more of the thing. You always need more of the thing. You know, you've, you remember that time where you thought, well, if I could just get that. Be great. And then when you got that, it was just, if I could just get that. Well, I know, I, I know. But if I could just get that. And, and then you get it. And then it's, if I could just get that. That's the idol. That's the idol. It's a mirage. You will always show up and there will never be water. There will never be water. The sign of the idol is that it promises way more than it can ever cash in. It'll wear you out and run you down and it'll leave you empty. C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, in chapter 10 of that wonderful book, has a paragraph and I... I I have it all over my journals. I go back to it all the time. And I couldn't help but think of it in reflecting on this passage. Listen to what he says. He says, Most people, if they have really learned to look into their own hearts, would know, that they, would know what it is that they want and would want something so acutely and they try to find it in this world but can't. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, for instance. Or first think of some foreign country to visit or to take up some subject that's going to excite us. Our longings, which are not marriage, not travel, and not learning, will ultimately not be satisfied by those things. Now, I am not speaking, this is Lewis, I am not speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages, or of holidays, or of learned careers, I am speaking of the best ones. There's something inside of us that even when we grasp them in the first moment of our longings, once we have them, it simply fades away. I think everyone knows what I mean. Now Lewis is getting into the depth of the human predicament. The fact that we have hungry hearts and those hungry hearts eat their way, as it were, through this life, always thinking that the next morsel will be the one that satisfies, only it doesn't. And it's the wisdom of the world that leads us to say, really, the problem is what you're pursuing in the world, not the world itself. The wisdom of the scripture says, no, when you have longings in this life, that you have sought to satisfy in this world, but realize that nothing in this world can satisfy them, then the thought you ought to have is, as Lewis would later say, I am made for another world. I am made for another world. 
I was never supposed to be satisfied with these things. Why is it that I have placed divine-like satisfaction on earthly goods? They'll never be able to satisfy the crushing weight of what it is I put upon them. Rachel and Leah haven't learned that through this process. Except for one place where there's a glimmer. And it is a glimmer. Like a flash in the pan. But it's one that grows in brightness throughout the pages of Scripture. After having the first of her three sons, each of them thinking, my husband will love me now. He'll be attached to me. Now he's going to honor me. It's, it's as if Leah gets a little worn out as she comes to her fourth child. And when her fourth child comes along, very simply, she names him Judah. And his name simply means nothing about her husband. Nothing about her sister. Nothing about envy. Nothing about angry. Nothing about usury. It simply means this. This time, I will praise the Lord. That's all it means. Now, in a few verses, she's going to forget that. Which is one reason I love Leah, because she's like you and me. It's like right now. If the Lord is at work in your heart through the power of the Spirit as he is in mine, as together we look at this scripture, you think to yourself, I'm never going to fold down these pathways again until you do tomorrow. Don't be hard on Leah without looking at yourself. Uh, yes, Leah has a glimmer of hope. It's in this moment as the fourth son comes, she realizes, I may never get the affection of my husband. I may never get what the desires I want in this life. I'm going to simply take this child for the gift that it is and the blessing it is, and I'm going to run it back up the flagpole to God himself. I will praise him this time for the son that he gives me. His name is Judah. Now what's beautiful, friends, is the one glimmer in this passage is the light that shines throughout the scriptures. Because when you turn to the opening pages in the genealogy of the book of Matthew, you see in that opening genealogy, that Abraham beget Isaac, and Isaac beget Jacob, and Jacob beget Judah. That this wrong wife became the right redemptive mother. The wife that Jacob would have never married became the mother that God uses to bring forth his own child, the Lord Jesus Christ. And remarkably, it teaches us this, that these women, though far off, weren't far off. They knew that they needed a child to secure their identity. They had just missed what child it was. They were going to need a child, a greater child that would come through their, their loins, would come through their bloodline. They needed that child for their identity to be wrapped around. And they needed that child to be a good husband. Because the Lord knows Jacob was a terrible husband. And it just so happens that that child 
is described in the scriptures and in the future through the book of Revelation as the great husband of his bride, the church, you and me. That son, through the line of Judah, becoming our groom, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we can say, I truly have the affections of my husband. We together, church, can say that. We truly have the identity of a better son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is ours. No longer is it about your achievement, your money, your spouse, or whatever it is you're after. It's about being found in the one who has come by his grace and found you. That's what this passage is about. This glimmer from Judah teaches us that we are made for another world. And we needed a child not born by ordinary generation to come and save us. We needed a child from heaven to come and save us. And that child, if you're in Christ today, has done just that. I don't know how tired you are, how worn out you are, how ready to give up you are, how frustrated and discontent you are, how relationally upside down you are with the people who are around you. But I would urge you, take a little time and look at your emotional upheavals, your relational conflicts. Look at the places where you feel devastated and desperate and drill into those. There's something there robbing you of the joy that is found in a much stabler and happier place. And his name is Jesus. And today he invites you not into some earthly good that will never cash in on its promises. He invites you into a heavenly good of which he has gone to prepare a place for you and of which you see him. Every longing that you've experienced here will in that moment be satisfied. And to the degree that you can see it right now, to that degree will you know it even now. Father in heaven, we would ask that you would give us that satisfaction that's only found in Christ. And that you would raise us up to behold him by faith and with joy Give ourselves over to him as we find satisfaction in the only place that is found. In our Savior, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ.